Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, February 12th, 2018. Gonna switch it up a little bit today. Had a conversation earlier with Benny Hinn's nephew, Costi Hinn. You're gonna wanna hear this interview. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching, that's put out by these people, isn't even remotely close to being biblical, what God's Word says, what Christians have believed, taught, and confessed, literally from the beginning of uh, the church, uh, the church's history. It's like, it's not, it's not apostolic doctrine. It's something completely different. Case in point, uh, the uh, New Apostolic Reformation and, uh, you know, that wing of the uh, charismatic movement that is literally off the rails. And earlier today, I had a, a really fun conversation with Costi Hinn. He and his uh, co-author, Anthony Wood, have recently published a book that is now available for purchase, and it is worth whatever money you need to pay to get a hold of one of these. I am not joking. It is well done. And it's kind of an insider's look at the charismatic movement from a guy who's now out of it who used to do ministry with Benny Hinn, Uncle Benny. Yeah, no joke. And it's not its not what you would think. It's not his testimony. He actually made this book theological and doctrinal. And uh, I have a theory, by the way. I have a theory. I'll, say, I'll state the theory publicly. Understand, this is a theory. But uh, if uh, if you've listened to Michael Brown's uh, uh, The Line of Fire from one week ago today, uh, where he's talking about the truth about NAR and Seven Mountain Theology, in that he discusses, he mentions a book that he had read a manuscript for and 
claimed that it, you know that he responded to the authors and said that oh this is all conspiracy theory and Illuminati and all this kind of nonsense. Uh huh. The book that he was referring to is the book that Costi Hinn and Anthony Wood wrote. That is, in fact, I would say not only is that a theory. I have had confirmation that would lend itself to saying that my theory is more than likely the case. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about is why is it that all of a sudden Michael Brown has been on a rant regarding the NAR and all this kind of stuff? Answer, real, it's real, it's actually quite simple to figure out now. This book just got published. This book has just recently been released. And uh, with Costi Hinn's name on it, uh, this uh, this book is a major threat to uh, the power structures of the New Apostolic Reformation and uh, third wave and fourth wave so-called charismatic movement stuff, uh, of, of which Michael Brown is heavily invested. That's the best way I could put it. And so uh, let's go ahead and get to it. Without any further ado, here is my interview from earlier today with Costi Hinn regarding his book uh, that he co-authored with Anthony Wood. And the name of it is Defining Deception. Here we go. I'm very excited because I've invited Costi Hinn, a famous relative of Benny Hinn, who used to do ministry work with him, onto the program to uh, to discuss his latest book titled Defining Deception. He's co-authored it with Anthony Wood. And uh, let me just go ahead and bring him right into uh, the program, and we will get everything started here. Costi, thank you for coming on Fighting for the Faith to discuss your book. Thanks for having me, Chris. Good to be here. All right, so I've read your book, uh, Defining Deception, and i got to give you props because there's a lot of things you could have done with this book. You could have made this like a tell-all book about all of the different things going on you know, that are nefarious within the Benny Hinn ministry, and that's not what you did. You ended up writing a book that addresses the core doctrinal issues of the entire charismatic and Pentecostal movements, which have made men like Benny Hinn and others possible. And you've spoken a lot in the book about the the core theology and practices of the New Apostolic Reformation. You name names, and uh, you spend a lot of time talking about Bethel Church in Redding, California. One of the things I found fascinating is in the book you make a very sharp distinction between uh, Benny Hinn and Bethel Church, as if Bethel Church is more dangerous because it's not a one-man operation. They're actually quite... Um, skilled at reproducing their theology and their leadership in others. And uh, whereas Benny is kind of like a one-man guy, and he's not all that hes not all that popular in the younger millennial generation. It's like my parents are the people who like Benny Hinn. So uh, got to admit, I, I found the book compelling, well-written, and I love the theological work that you did on it. Well, first of all, thank you, and we're praising God. That was our prayer all along. My co-author uh, and is also our teaching pastor here at the church. I serve as the executive pastor, so love working side-by-side side with him. When we started this, we prayed through it and talked through it, and the book was always going to be theological. It was just a matter of, of uh, helping people connect the dots and making sure. We added some personal touches, like experience is good, for illustrating. It sheds light on things so we can right. relate to an author and have a good reader experience. But overall, um, yeah, it's almost pointless 
and I talked about this a lot with my pastor and, and good counselors early on, it, they, a lot of people said, well, why don't you write the first book on your testimony? Why don't you write it on an expose of your uncle, etc.? All of that is useless because it, it's not theological. So no one gets closer to God if I expose things. Um, I'll, I've shared my testimony. I, I'll put it in print form eventually so people can be edified by it. But everything has to point to the gospel, to Christ. Uh, we're on a re- this is a rescue operation for sheep. Yep. We're trying to save people, and we know God saves. And who does He use? He uses men, and so we want to be faithful. Um, and so, yeah, we're grateful. Your words are affirming, and just they're an answer to prayer. That was our goal all along. That that's what God would use the project for. Yeah, and so if if you're looking for a, a tell-all book about the uh, the dirty laundry of Benny Hinn, this is not your book. If you're looking for a book that will carefully, methodically, with good research and good biblical grounding, offer a critique of the charismatic movement as a whole going all the way back into its history uh, with Parham, with others, you know, Catherine Kuhlman and uh, Wigglesworth and others like that, and then examining what's going on in the current manifestation of the Pentecostal movement and, uh, and, and that portion of the Pentecostal movement that is within the NAR now. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm assuming since you write so much about it that you don't think the NAR is the so-called NAR, that it's an actual real thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, if I can go on a website with my wife and get a couple's discount to become an apostle, I, that, what is that? That's the new apostolic reformation. We have there, well, I say we, not us, but as a, as a whole, there is a, a reforming group now that have reformed. It's the new apostolic reformation. And uh, in the book, we mention it. You've got C. Peter Wagner uh, post Wimber's death. Wimber died in 97. And so C. Peter Wagner comes along and says that God told him that the apostolic era has now begun. And he's the guy and many others have come along. So I, Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of thing that people, some people will say, well, it's conspiracy theory, or this is just, you know, you guys are Pharisees in a corner barking about nothing. I'll tell you what, this isn't a debate on cessation versus continuation. It's not a debate on miraculous gifts. This isn't even a railing judgment on the entirety of Pentecostalism. This is about the truth, about the facts. And if you just take what the text says and take the gifts out of the debate, Mm-hmm. Are we going to see another Paul? There's not going to be another Paul. There isn't going to be another Peter. So, yeah, there's a lot of distracting arguments around this type of topic. But if you look at the facts, uh, there are those who say there are apostles again, and there aren't. Right, exactly. And uh, and you put and you put Bethel right into that morphed version of the third wave. And I think you do so with uh, with good reason, and you document it very well in the book. Now I understand your time is is valuable. I, I I get that, and so where I really wanted to focus the conversation on because I really want people to get your book. I think your book will be a valuable tool moving forward in the years ahead to help open people's eyes. And uh, one of the things that I do, I don't talk about it a lot, but it comes up from time to time. Um, I can see your heart for helping those who have been deceived and are yeah. and their eyes have been opened and uh, and that's one of the big things that 
we've tried to come to grips with and act, uh, at least come up with a way to help people who have been yep. deceived. And so uh, the idea is, is that this book not only talks about what's wrong, it begins to give people the biblical basis for being able to figure out where do I go now to get healing? Wh- you know, how, yep. how do I unpack what happened to me? And yep. so that being the case, I'd like to kind of focus in on a little bit of your discussion in chapter six. And again, I, you know, we're going to just jump right into the, the doctrinal pieces of it. But people, you got to get this book. You got, it, he gives a great history of the, the so-called generals of the, uh, of the Pentecostal movement as put forward by uh, Bethel Church and Bill Johnson. But uh, I, I'm assuming, you know, since you spent so much time in the Pentecostal movement, these doctrinal errors that you cover, um, you were either aware of them or bought in and believed them when you were part of the movement. And so um, one of the things that has come up in discussion, at, at least as far as kind of a bigger conversation that's taking place regarding the NAR and people like Michael Brown and others, is uh, the Christology of the of the the NAR and churches like Bethel Church. And uh, at my at my Pirate Christian Radio conference last year, I actually dedicated one of my lectures to addressing the canonic. Uh, understanding of of Christology as put forward by C. Peter Wagner, but I have found that same theology embraced by Bill Johnson and others. And it's this yeah. general idea that um, Jesus says, greater works you will do than I have done. And C. Peter Wagner explicitly taught, and you know Bethel Church teaches, that Jesus did his miracles not because he was God in human flesh, but he did all of his miracles as a mere man who was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And as an anointed man by the Holy Spirit, he then becomes the model that we are to follow so that we can do the greater works that he has done. Yeah. And so uh, you actually picked that up as doctrinal error number one in chapter six of your book. And I, I just got to ask you, it's like, well, are are you saying that these guys have a false Christology? I've noticed the softball there. <laughs> sure. Yeah. It, yeah. Absolutely. There's a reason why it's doctrinal error number one is because that is a historical heresy. That's not even us picking on Bill or NAR guys like C. Peter Wagner and others. This is low hanging fruit. It's a so- it should be a softball for every Christian. Yeah. Historical. Heresy regarding the doctrine of Christ does one thing. It diminishes his deity. If you believe in a Jesus who is not truly God, truly man, all the way through, mm-hmm. how can a man, a mere man, save sinful men? Can't. He can't be the satisfaction of the wrath of God. He can't bear sin for us without sinning. There's no way, because he's not what God intended when he sent his son to earth. So you diminish Christ and you got a false savior. Um, Jesus said there'll be many false Christs that go out there. So there's going to be a lot of people that look like a Jesus that aren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to be men who look like work, workers of righteousness and real prophets that are going to be workers of deceit and false prophets. And so, yeah, Second Peter 2 has become my favorite chapter in the Bible for explaining heretical teaching and false teachers because it's so easy, and I'm a simple guy. I like things that are easy to understand, that are boiled down with small words. And Peter does a great job saying that there are those who will exploit people in their greed. Yep. They'll come, they'll deny even the master. So, and 
what does he say? That they're going to secretly introduce destructive heresies. Second Peter 2, 1 through 3 will give you kind of the full picture there at the start of the chapter. Mm-hmm. And at the end of Second Peter 2, he says they'll be like dogs returning to their vomit. So they're going to say, oh, well, that's not really what I meant. Oh, I'm sorry. I repent. And then go back to the same teaching. The main thing we got to understand when we're talking Christology 101, nobody's showing up saying, hey, here I am. I'm a false teacher. I'm here to deceive you, make money, and drive a Bentley off of your donations. No way. Nope. They're coming in with a whole lot of truth. And then the secret poison dripped in along the way. And that is one. To say that Jesus laid aside his divinity is absolute heresy. It was subtraction by addition. I love the way Sproul puts it. He added humanity to his divinity. Yeah. He lay aside his godness, to use a kind of a, a made up or simple word. He didn't lay aside the fact that he was God. He added humanity to his divinity. Um, there were. Yeah, we could go on and on. It just right. it is it's heresy. Chris. And that's exactly by the way what the Athanasian Creed says that 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 God himself took humanity into his divinity and there's nothing that Jesus did that he did purely by operation of merely his humanity which no. which doesn't make any sense. That would create two Jesuses. Now you and your co-author you you uh you take this canonic concept, which is a core teaching with Bethel, with the NAR, and you you bring it into the Arian heresy camp, which I think a strain of it, it can rightly go into that camp. Um, I would argue that it's also a form of the Nestorian heresy. The Nestorian heresy kind of takes Jesus and splits him in two. So That's you, right. you end up with two Christs. And so you, you can't do that. Everything that Jesus did, he did as the God-man. You know, including the miracles right. that he did, including, by the way, I would argue that no human could have borne the wrath of God but the way Christ did. You know, so the God, God, the God man bore the wrath of God on the cross for us, and which is, you know, the genesis of Christ's dereliction from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and so what I find fascinating is by diminishing this idea of the divinity of Christ and somehow Jesus can flip a switch and turn it off which is not possible. Now, it is absolutely true that Jesus chose not to fully operate with his divinity to such a degree that, you know, Mount of Transfiguration is quite a standout event because now his glory is shining out. Um, yep. And then, you know, and then he, he mutes it again. But that doesn't take away from the fact that Jesus Christ is both true God and true man at the same time from the beginning of his incarnation even to this day. Which ha- right. which hasn't stopped, but by taking the deity of Christ then and and basically making it so that Jesus can somehow turn it off or not operate within using his deity, then what they end up doing that's the move that's necessary for me to now begin to operate. And I find the wording fascinating: the anointing. You know? That's right. And and uh, and you know, translate the word anointing back into Greek. It's the word Christos. Translate the word anointing back into Hebrew, and now you got the Hebrew word Mashiach. So I think their theology, I'm, I'll be blunt, I see it as a fulfillment of the warning that Jesus gives us in Matthew 24 of false Christs, of false anointed ones, because their whole theology is predicated on, I'm an anointed one. It exalts me and turns me into a little deity. And I don't think yep. that's a mistake. 
No, and I, I find it interesting. And if you look at history, you mentioned Arianism and Nestorianism. Uh, I think you got Docetism and many others. Here's what I, I wish I could go back in time and look at. Were those men, the answer probably is no, but maybe some of them yes. Were those men twisting Christology because they wanted to set up an enterprise to charge tuition to people to come to their Signs of Wonder school and yeah. create a mint. Or were these philosophers and intellectuals and wannabe theologians, and some of them theologians, who, who were trying, well-intentioned, but missed it, and others who were certainly uh, you know, demonic imposters or whatever you'd want to call them, or completely unregenerate men, just like we have today, who infiltrate and are just teaching wrong things. But... What Bethel has done is is brilliant in a millennial generation. They have created an enterprise from that theology. So I think it's off the top of my head, you write these kind of books, you start to memorize stuff and dream about it. it page 29, when heaven invades earth, right then and there, Bill Johnson mm-hmm. says, Jesus didn't do his miracles as he did his miracles as a man in right relationship with God. And then there's an ellipsis, not as God. Yep, exactly. And therefore, that lifestyle is attainable for me. Bill Johnson's not impressed unless he can do what Jesus did. Otherwise, what's the point? We sit around and wait for Jesus to return and twiddle our thumbs in a Baptist church? Boring. I want signs and wonders. That's kind of his approach. Mm-hmm. And man, that makes for great marketing. We are living in a social gospel era. Millennials love to get involved in a cause. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to change the world. And what do you do? Give them a theology that diminishes Christ, elevates them, and now you've got a money-making machine. And that's what would I'd say would tie it in even to a prosperity gospel approach. And really, Second Peter 2, again, exploiting people in their greed. It's a money-making machine to basically diminish Christ, elevate man, and now you've got Bethel in Reading. Now, how much does it cost offhand? You know, what's the average tuition, and how, how long does it take for you to attend the Bethel School of the of Supernatural Ministry? Yeah, so this is a little bit personal, and it stings. The last time I checked into the tuition was when we were doing research. One of my sisters went, mm-hmm. and she was in a very, very destructive relationship. She went to get healing there. Uh, just a young woman lost and trying to find help. And so she joined the school. They call Chris Valaton KVAL is kind of his nickname. And so uh, in going there, I started researching, and I was kind of telling my family, like, no, 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 this is not good. And I'll look again if this has been changed, but it's going to cost you towards in the neighborhood with living and everything 10K for – the length of the program, and I think it can go up to two years. It's kind of a, a you can leave early as well. But uh, she went for I think a little over a year, um, and then left. Thank God. But I, you know, prophetess training and the whole bit, and that's one thing. And, and Chris, this is this is not to be. Um, I'm not trying to be funny when I say this. Right. I'm being I'm being literal when I say this. The the theology that they have that says they're going to heal whole cities. And you've heard Todd White and all of them say this, that they're going to heal entire cities, they're going to solve the social problems, the crime, political, all of it. When we were doing research on the book, we did research on Reading. And my own sister was concerned, my parents were concerned, that this is one of the places that can be considered one of the rape capitals of California. 
The, I mean, this is mm-hmm. they're not solving these issues. They're creating their own mecca of false healing, false hope, while the community around them is destroyed. And like a true false movement and false teachers, they're doing some good. They're helping the poor. They're opening their doors to people. And it looks good enough to get the passing grade. But Reading is not changing because of Bethel. And local news stations have even put out reports of the the chaos that they're causing when students run out towards all the customers at a Jamba Juice and start prophesying over people. And people just want to be left alone. That's not the gospel. So I'm not being funny. You're laughing. I get it. it, it, I'm laughing because it's just absurd on its face. But what's fascinating is is that in the book you actually make a connection between Simon the Sorcerer and what Bethel is doing. Simon the Sorcerer in the book of Acts saw how the, op- the, the, the apostles were operating, and he wanted the same power that they had, and he was right. willing to pay money to get it. And in reality, Bethel Church is engaging, and, and the name of the sin historically has been simony. That's the name mm-hmm. of the sin, the belief that you can buy the power of God with money. But you're, by putting a price tag on it and saying you can come to our school, you pay us $10,000, and you will receive the training as a prophet, that's simony. I don't care how you – what you what you do, but that's exactly what uh, Scripture speaks against. And Peter had the sharpest rebuke for Simon, basically saying, "You perish with your money, you son right. of the devil." You know. Yep. And that's I. I love doing this for the sake of argument and conversation. Is you and I even talked about this a little bit before we were on. If you take the cessation continuation debate and just stick it on the shelf for a minute, yep. The Holy Spirit. So let's pretend there's a charismatic Pentecostal. We got all of us in a room together. Put the debate on the shelf, and every man must agree biblically that the Holy Spirit never distributed his gifts under his sovereign will and authority. There was no measure given that someone got by paying money. Yeah. The gifts of the Spirit are from the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So even a Pentecostal and a charismatic, an open but cautious guy, we all together have to sit in a room and go, at the end of the day, Anybody selling this stuff, saying, hey, come here to get this stuff, they're out. We can all debate the rest under kind of an orthodox umbrella and go, hey, quit babbling, guys. And they'll say, hey, stop being a hyper-Calvinist. And we'll say we're not. You know, all that stuff. We go back and forth all day. But everyone must agree. And that's what the whole book is trying to do is help evangelicalism say Bethel – is out. The New Apostolic Reformation is real. They're out. Brian Simmons and the Passion Translation, out. out. Odd White, out. Gateway Church, out. Unless they come back to orthodoxy and resume the old debates, you know, now we can be golfing buddies and debate signs and wonders or, or the sign gifts. Fine. But no third wave, no NAR, none of that stuff. Um, that's all the the good old days were when it was MacArthur and Piper and it was open but cautious and cessationist. There, those days are gone. Yeah, and these guys have infiltrated mainstream evangelicalism with heresy. Yeah, no, they have. And uh, let, so let let me ask you this because you actually spend a little bit of time about talking about sharing the stage and the yep. and the and you. I think you do a very good job of cautiously making a distinction between where we can work together with people and where we can't. And and so I'm I'm going to I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you a tough and kind of straightforward question. 
and that is is that uh, you know Michael Brown, who's made it clear that he's not a dominionist, he's you know clarified yep. his position, he's not a dominionist, and that he has ought theologically with those people who are talking about the need for people to take their ministries and put them under uh, modern day apostles. So he's made mm-hmm. that clear. Uh, he still shares the stage with men like Bill Johnson and Todd White and Ron uh, Reinhard Bonnke and a whole bunch of other people who are clearly in the NAR. And uh, the question I have for you, based on the fact that you actually cover this as like a like a whole discussion in your book, uh, is that an appropriate sharing of the stage? And if not, why not? Great question. Um... So, no, it's not an appropriate sharing of the stage. Uh, I'm not saying that anybody who shares a stage with a false teacher is the heretic themselves. Mm-hmm. But I will say that it is unwise, and you do not want to be endorsing by simply being even a part of something, because new converts, let's boil it all the way down to Paul's use of, of Christian liberty. Let's say, you know, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I can go where I want if I'm trying to preach the gospel. It's not my fault if Bill is there. Uh, all right, I, I understand that. However, you've got people watching their hero who's faithful and a heretic hang out. And there there are people that are and I don't mean this rudely, they're too young in the faith or too ignorant still to make that distinction. And part of our job as shepherds is to what? Lay out the boundary lines of the pasture so that the sheep remain safe. All right, we're going to pause the interview right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Click break when we come back. The balance of my conversation recorded earlier today with Costi Hinn regarding the book Defining Deception. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Peter, James, John, and Paul are all dead. That means there are no living apostles in the church today. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Python's Flying Circus Church. Thank you for 
downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. Hold on a second. You out there! I'm supposed to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer! Shut up! Don't feel sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas... Hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time. I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible 
is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture. I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that Bethel in Reading is part of the New Apostolic Reformation. Because it is. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two, no, actually three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Commitment lowest rank is Powder Monkey at nine dollars ninety five cents a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at twenty four ninety five a month. From there, Master Gunner at forty nine ninety five a month, and then Quartermaster at ninety nine ninety five a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. If you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, click on our Become a Patron button. Or if you'd like to make a traditional type uh, uh, donation to what we're doing, click on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Here is the balance of my conversation from earlier today with Costi Hinn and his new book, Defining Deception. Here we go. You, I cannot, and I, I turned down an opportunity. I'm not saying this to be self-aggrandizing either. There was a, a, a or big organization that helps orphans, and they said, hey, would you be willing to, to take some travel dates, go and help kids get sponsored or orphans since you came out of the prosperity gospel and you guys were pilfering all the poor for all those years, Costi, you know, why don't you help us out? And so I'm like, okay, Ooh. makes sense, <laughs> you know, yeah. and all, all good. And they said, we just, we need to tell you one thing though. And I said, well, what's that? They said, we know how you feel. You know, I was writing the book with Pastor Tony 
and we're clear about stage sharing and all that. They said, we did just sign Bethel, and we know you have concerns, and we did just sign John Gray, who is Joel Osteen, and I'm going, yeah. you guys, like, come on. We, you know I have to say no. I would have loved to go somewhere, share my testimony, and I go, listen up, everybody. Sponsor orphans. It's a good thing. Let's help people. That would have been fine. The minute you have to put me at a conference next to Bill and we're towing the party line for the same organization, I'm not going to stand with a guy and say, hey, we'll put bygones aside. Yeah, Christological heresies. Well, I understand, but we're just here to, to help orphans. It doesn't work that way. Right. Uh, Peter, you don't see a model biblically for teaming up with false teachers. They are in a category on their own. They stay at arm's length. We call them to repent. We mark them. But nowhere in the Bible do I partner with one of them because it benefits me and it helps expand my ministry reach. Last thing I'll say on that too, Chris, we got turned down left and right from really, really godly men, men I deeply respect, left and right, though, on endorsements. And the reason is not because they disagreed with the book. Is because they said, well, I, I have no interest in uh, in being an endorser on a book that, that goes after that guy. We said, well, he's a prosperity gospel proponent. He's clearly dangerous. Well, I understand, but I just – it's that I need to stay in my lane. This isn't my fight. And you see one by one shepherds run from the sword – they lay down their staff, and they expect to protect the sheep from wolves, but they're empty-handed. That's not a man of God right. in that sense. A man of God, yes, is peaceable, and yes, don't need to be in every fight waging war all the time. But for this kind of thing, I really wanted a few more of my heroes to come to the table, our heroes, Pastor Tony and I both, and I, it would cost them greatly. They would lose swaths of people. Uh, if they endorsed a book like this, we're thankful for the men that have. Some men stood to lose a lot and still uh, endorsed it. But yeah, if I were to ever talk to Dr. Michael Brown, and I've never talked to him personally, I I wouldn't be going after him. I would say the same thing if you shared a stage, Chris. I'd say, come on, brother. There are the guys that are out and the guys that are in, and the guys that are in, we can debate some things. But if someone's clearly out, you want to just steer clear. Lose money lose followers, lose whatever, but don't confuse the sheep. Yeah. That is not what a shepherd does. Yeah, I agree. Now, let me ask you another question then. Um, this is not exactly, it, in so many words, covered in your book. It's somewhat alluded to. And uh, within the charismatic Pentecostal movements, and especially the NAR, is this belief that if signs and wonders do not accompany your preaching of the gospel, then your gospel is deficient. It's yep. not It's not a true, full gospel. Now, you didn't say it in th- so many words, but I did note that there was, like, there was some sub-themes that you were kind of teasing at it with. Um, it, what would you say to the person who says, you know, we must operate in signs and wonders? I think you covered in one of your appendixes when you covered uh, uh, the long ending of Mark, uh, you know, but it was a slightly different topic. But the issue is is that there are a lot of people who take the long ending of Mark and say, listen, no, it's a gospel imperative that there, are, that there have to be signs and wonders, and if there isn't, then we're doing something wrong. Yeah. Uh, we can go a couple of different places. The first I would say is if you're going to take the long ending of Mark and do something with it, 
And let's say we have to, okay? And we gotta, we gotta answer those questions and you don't wanna go textual criticism or go too far with certain things. Let's just say, Paul is a great fulfillment of being bitten by a snake and brushing it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can think of time after time throughout the Bible that there is a command given and it's clear and there are functions given and it's clear and we can actually obey what the Bible says, do it and it's great. Uh, Great example, you you walk in obedience with New Testament commands and the church benefits, right? You bear one another's burdens, you restore, you can exercise church discipline. All those things are completely prescriptive. They're prescribed. You should take them and do them, and they'll create a functioning, blessed body of Christ. If you drink poison, I can assure you, you will probably die. That's not what you do. You don't go and say, well, let me let me get bitten by a snake. And you see Pentecostal churches, charismatic third wave churches do these things. You've seen them snake handle and all that stuff yep, on yep, YouTube. Yep. I would say to somebody, first of all, Romans 1.16 says it's the gospel, the good news, that is the power of God unto salvation. Yep. So there is no single lane model where the gospel always accompanies signs and wonders Otherwise, how in the world are people being saved in churches left and right, true converts, mm-hmm. without a sign or a wonder at all? The gospel itself is a sign. Let's go. It's a, salvation's a miracle. So I could easily argue that dead men can't save themselves. Therefore, it is miraculously raising of the dead, that is salvation, a dead sinner being raised to new life. So yeah, every time a convert comes to know Christ, and he calls them and opens their eyes, that is 100% miraculous. So signs and wonders are following you and I every time somebody's converted within our scope of ministry, Chris. I would say this too, though, the greater works, that's another big one, greater works will you do than I? It's pure biblical logic. You can't raise better dead people than Jesus. You can't raise a better dead, dead person than Jesus. You can't do a better miracle than Jesus. So what are greater works? Well, Jesus' ministry was three and a half years. Also, Jesus' ministry covers a very small geographical location. And then what does he say in Acts 1.8? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We have ministries now upwards of one, two, three, four, five decades. You look at six-decade ministries. We have greater works in extent and quantity, but not quality. It's impossible to do better miracles than the miracle worker himself, Christ. So I I deal with these conversations often. I've had my own mother ask me things recently. I'm very proud of her, actually. I'm going to say this live on your show. I'm happy to. Um, My mom, just a few weeks back, actually now it'll be a few months uh, to be accurate, said, hey, you were right. That Jesus calling gal, Sarah Young, she's crazy, Costi. I said, well, what do you mean, Mom? She said, I read in the beginning. She says, I know God gave us the Bible, but I yearn for more. She said, that's mm-hmm. totally wrong. You can't say that. And my mom is still a charismatic woman. And I said, good job, Mama. You keep studying and keep digging. And so she said, I want to be like a Berean. I want to study. I want to get this stuff right. I don't want to be crazy. I know you're writing the book and all this stuff. And I said, well, what other questions do you have? And my mom asked me about greater work. She was saying, so what does that mean? And my mom actually had a tumor on her pituitary gland in 2008 and nine, And that caused our family to ask even more questions. Yeah. So if you've got greater works, guaranteed healing, we should all be doing this and everybody should be getting it. Then when life happens, 
people are very confused because they've been being spiritually abused. Yeah. Um, so it's a great question, but I would say the gospel is much more than just doing miracles. The gospel is the good news of Christ dying for sinners. It's a wrath we deserve. He takes our place, gives us his grace. I mean, that gospel 101, um, it is a straw man argument and a ploy to say, where's your signs and wonders? I'll say one last thing, Chris. It's a long monologue, but thanks for listening. Uh, I used to do that. My dad and I both. This was our big line when we were in ministry together and with my uncle. We would say, you got theology, Chris. Oh, yeah, you got a big head. You know everything. You show me your power. What can you do? Watch what we can do. We would use the power card mm. to say that you are less, you are weak, and we would elevate ourselves as the signs and wonders guys, and we would pass off Baptists and anyone with anyone without a signs and wonders theology. We would say, these are weaklings. We're the real men of God doing signs and wonders. It's exactly what Bethel's still doing. It's an old game. Yeah, no, when I was in the charismatic movement, I got to tell you, um, I felt a lot of pressure put on me to glow in the dark. Um, you know, and I, and it, <laughs> I call it that way because it's, it's kind of along those lines. It's that, you know, you've got to speak in tongues. You've got to hear directly from God. And, and, uh, I, I never was really successful at being able to speak in tongues, but there was a lot of pressure put on me to do so. And, uh, you, you mentioned that kind of in passing in, in your book about how in the charismatic movement, there are a lot of people who have anxiety that they're not saved because they don't speak in tongues or that they're a lesser Christian because they don't speak in tongues. And, uh, and I, that's all kind of part of this is that in, and so, Historically, the, the the two distinctives of the Pentecostal movement are a second baptism, a spiritual baptism, as evidenced by speaking in tongues, and that has, uh, some of the generals that you mentioned in your in your uh, chapter on the generals explicitly taught if you're not speaking in tongues, you're not saved, and uh, and so this is kind of a football that gets kicked around a little bit within the charismatic and Pentecostal movements, and uh, John Wimber eschewed the idea that you had to speak in tongues to be saved. He was a fellow who you know, suffered and ended up dying of cancer. But, um, you know, but over and again, you, you have this pressure with this false doctrine being put on you. And Scripture explicitly says, not all speak in tongues. This is just, it's, you know, God, the Holy Spirit gives differing gifts for the purpose of creating a body, and we're not all the same body part. But uh, one of the things you, you know, kind of bring up then is this idea that um, when somebody isn't healed because the expectation is created, they they yep. take the atonement of Christ and they say your healing's in the atonement. Therefore, it's up to you to you know, reach out and grab and you know and activate this by faith. And you know I always say to people, don't trust a faith healer who wears glasses because that person hasn't grabbed their healing yet. Um, yeah. But the, but the reality is is that over and again, and I've seen this happen when I was in the charismatic movement, when people are not healed. It is their fault. They didn't have enough faith. Talk about that. Number one, it's spiritual abuse completely. And we need to stand up against that every time, all the time. Uh, Number two, it's completely unbiblical. Absolutely unbiblical. Uh, To say that somebody is unsaved because they don't speak in tongues is to just spit on Paul's letters. Mm-hmm. What do you do with that? Uh, even as you say that, I just 
I want to take every single person in the entire world that's been abused by this movement, put them in a giant stadium and just set it all straight and then send them out to Bible churches. I mean, that's, it's, it is, uh, it's wolves plucking sheep and attacking the flock of God. And if people would read the Bible and I'm not just going to blame all the false teachers, Christians read your Bible, go to the text a biblically illiterate Christian is a sitting duck. Yeah, you gotta be on guard. And there, uh, you and I probably spent a lot of time, Chris, exhorting pastors and leaders, our own selves, looking in the mirror, and as leaders, keeping the bar where biblically it is, it's high. But we also need to demand of people who wear the label Christian to behave like one, to read like one, to pray like one, to study like one, arm yourself with the Word of God, yep. and you will have a lot less to worry about. Yep. And so that's one of the things I, I'm passionate about equipping people with. Uh, so that's false completely. And then this idea that you know, if you're just going to have enough faith and name it and claim it, you can get it, or it's your fault if you're not being healed. Look at the New Testament healing ministry of Christ. Just look at it. Yes, there are beautiful moments where he's moved with compassion. When the guys lower their buddy through the roof. When a woman crawls to touch the hem of his garment. Absolutely. And then what does Jesus do when he turns to the woman with the issue of blood? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Calls her daughter. Interesting. There's salvific significance to his miracles. He's saving people. His most important ministry was not even healing. He just did that to show, here I am. And then sometimes he did it just to rattle the Pharisees. He would forgive sins and heal on the Sabbath and say, now what? Mm -hmm. I instituted the Sabbath. I'm the fulfillment of the law. And the Pharisees didn't get it. So you can't take Jesus' model and say, well, here's what it is. Create an enterprise from it. Make it a commodity and go out and do it. Jesus did heal and was moved by faith and compassion. And then one of my favorites in John 5, what does he do? He heals a guy that's just sitting at the pool of Bethesda in a multitude. He heals one. The guy's been sick 38 years. And what does he do? He heals him. Pick up your pallet and walk. The Pharisees come and go, what are you doing? It's Sabbath. You can't do that. Who told you you can pick up your pallet and walk? What does Jesus say later on in John 5? He goes, listen, it was me. In other words, I'm paraphrasing, but he goes, I don't know who the guy is. He goes, Jesus finds him later. Jesus slips through the crowd and he's blown away. He runs and, you know, tells the Pharisees after that. Yeah, he rats on Jesus. He rats on Jesus. If there's not a more obvious instance that he didn't know who Jesus was, it's it's right there that he goes and tells the Pharisees, proves that he didn't even perceive who Jesus was. And what does he get? He gets a healing. Yeah. You cannot you can't take Christ and turn him into a formula. And so people need to understand James 1, 2 is in the Bible for a reason. Mm-hmm. You're going to have trials. If you are going to stand up for Christ, you're going to be persecuted. We're going to suffer. You've got passage after passage after passage throughout the New Testament that uses the words, the phrase, one another. Why? Because, Chris, i got to bear up under you. And hold you up when you're going through tough times. If it's a Galatians 6, 1, 2 moment where I need to bear one another's burdens with you, i got to do that. you got to do it for me. We're a body, yeah. which means it's not going to be wholesale healing all the time, wholesale health and wealth. Yeah. There are uh, a plethora of other things we could talk about as well going down that rabbit trail. But 
it's a teaching we need time and time again to go back to is we're going to suffer. It's going to be hard. Some people are going to get healed, and that's great. And God is a sovereign God working still today through prayers of faith, not wielding healers who think that they've got a gift that they don't, but they can't clear a hospital. Uh, we just need to stick together as the church and stick to the text. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Uh, what would be the implications if God the Holy Spirit were actually performing legitimate miracles in the in the uh, ministry of Bethel Church and uh, and Benny Hinn? What, I mean, what would that literally be signaling to us in the body of Christ? Well... It would, first of all, signal, I'm turning in the book of Acts. My my favorite one is when Philip is talking to the eunuch, and then he's transported. He just disappears. Yeah. And so um, if you're going to wield miracles and do that, first of all, that would be an indicator that we're just, we're still rocking the same old way. And there was no cessation, no fading of certain gifts. Mm-hmm. And I would I would then be more open to a debate about signs and wonders and modern-day apostles. Because guys would have to be, they would be wielding these things, wild things would be happening all the time. And what? They would have an orthodox gospel. Mm -hmm. That's the main issue here, too. I want to just touch on that as well. Find me somebody who is wielding the sign gifts however they want, whenever they want, and also preaching an accurate gospel. Yeah. And you can't find one, Chris. You cannot find one. There's, I haven't met one, and I'm not saying that I'm the infallible source of that. There's probably other Pentecostals and Charismatics who would want to speak into that, too. You can't find them. The only people saying that that exists today are the leaders of the Third Wave and the New Apostolic Reformation who are claiming remarkable experiences. And you know what? Sure, some people get healed. And some people have great moments where God intervenes in their situation, believers in the church, all those things. But that, if that's not happening all the time, and it's not happening at your word or at your hand, and you're not wielding a gift, praise God for it, and that's all it is. What about all the women that are still barren? Yeah. What about all the people still dying of cancer? So uh, that would be one thing I would say. Um you know, on that, is there is there more you want to talk about with regards to that? Well, um, so so the the idea then is is that if you're going to talk about, you keep mentioning these as sign gifts, and um, you know, if if Benny Hinn were legitimately performing signs and wonders, I would argue that we would have to add all of his books to the back end of our Bible because God the Holy Spirit is validating the doctrines that uh, Benny Hinn is teaching as well, and I gotta be blunt. I, you know, I've heard so many crazy things from Benny Hinn, um, you know, and I, I, I understand that you know he eventually offered some correction to his nine members of the Trinity doctrine, and you know, and later did that. And and from what I understand, he got that from Phineas Dake in his uh, in his bizarre. Uh, Bible, which I own a copy of. I've owned it for decades. It's just it's, I grew up with one in my house. That's what I yeah. yeah. So Dake's annotated study Bible with all of its crazy end of the world eschatological charts and stuff. But uh, but I've I've also heard Benny Hinn give prophecies that haven't come true, and yep. you know regarding uh, you know Fidel Castro and gay people in uh, in San Francisco and all this kind of and that all of these things were going to take place before the uh, the end of the nineties and uh, you know the the nineties ended a while ago. 
And yeah. um, and so one of the things that happens in the NAR and third wave and, you know, in, in the Pentecostal movement as a whole kind of in its generic sense uh, is, the, is that they've lost the biblical definition of what a false prophet is. And so yeah. if somebody false, prophesies falsely, that doesn't make them a false prophet. If they prophesy falsely, that means they're just a true prophet who prophesied falsely, which doesn't make any sense at all. Um, you know, what is your experience with that, and how would you define a, a false prophet? Great question. Uh, and we didn't even talk about that beforehand, so I love that when you went there. As you started to talk, I turned back to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, because the Old Testament tends to be where things get borrowed from a lot for the NAR and third wave and charismatic theology. But uh, the first time I ever called my uncle a false prophet, my my parents said, Costi, be very careful. Do not touch the Lord's anointed. Yeah, And that's tied to not doing my prophets no harm, God said, to David, who was dealing with a monarchical king in the lineage of Israel, and that meant don't kill him. Yeah. Don't don't commit a violent act. Uh, it has nothing to do with New Testament commands, Romans 16, 17, and 18, to mark those, literally scopeo, mm-hmm. like a scope, put the crosshairs on them, mm-hmm. those who are teaching things that are completely contrary yeah. to what Christ taught. Those are divisive people. Titus says to put the factious man out. You got uh, Ephesians talking about uh, exposing the deeds of darkness not participating. I think it's Ephesians 5.11. New Testament command after New Testament command. We're to test the spirits. We're to weigh a man's teaching, weigh his life. First Timothy yeah. 3, the qualifications of a pastor, elder, overseer, across the board. Touching the Lord's anointed or t- talking about a false prophet or calling somebody a false prophet has it, no bearing on Old Testament commands not to touch the Lord's anointed. Here's what I'm going to say, Chris. Um Prophecy needs to look like the Bible. Mm-hmm. You might get into the Baseball Hall of Fame by batting 300, but you don't make it into the Prophetic Hall of Fame batting 300. You can't go 3 for 10. You need to go 10 for 10 if you're God's mouthpiece. Yep. And I go back to the uh, book of Deuteronomy on this, and here's what I told my parents and what I told one of my uncles, not my Uncle Benny. Another uncle called me, and he said, you're out of your jurisdiction. He's actually, he, pre- he preached a series called the New Apostolic Reformation. He's a full-on NAR apostle, believes he's an apostle. He said, you're out of your jurisdiction, Costi. I agree with what you're saying. These abuses have gone on for years. But as a pastor, you're out of your jurisdiction. It's my area to handle. In other words, he's an apostle. I'm a pastor. It's his job to handle it. And I asked him if he would hear me out. And I read to him God's word on this, and it says, And it shall come about that whoever, Deuteronomy eighteen nineteen, whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, talking about prophet, I myself will require it of him. Now, but that's then, an actual prophecy regarding Christ right there. Moses is prophesying about yeah. Jesus coming. Yeah. But the prophet who shall speak a word presumptuously in my name, capital M, my name, God talking, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he shall speak in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And I told my parents and my uncle, I don't want Uncle Benny to die. I don't want him to fall by the wayside because of God's hand upon him, striking him. But if he's a prophet and you can't touch him, he needs to be measured by this. And you may say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? People are wondering, well, 
God, how do we know then what is and what isn't? Yep. When a prophet speaks, verse 22, in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. I told my uncle, told my family, our pastors and leadership at the church have talked to people about it. We're not touching the Lord's anointed. We're not scared to call a man a false prophet if what he prophesied does not come true and does not match what the Bible has made clear. He is not a prophet that is a false prophet. I do not fear him. I love him and pray that he will repent, Mm -hmm. but I do not fear that man. That is a false prophet, and I'm to now protect the bride of Christ, Mm -hmm. the bride that we should be protecting the purity of. The bride that we should be uh, correcting, reproving, loving, caring for, disciplining, raising up, exhorting, discipling. I'm going to protect the flock of God every chance I get. And I know you are, too, because that's false prophecy, and these are false prophets. Right. Now, I find it fascinating that the continuationists will always go to the passage in the, in, uh, the epistle to the Thessalonians. I think it's the first one. But uh, talking about not despising prophecies, but to test them. But then when you test them and the test comes back negative, then it, they play the touch not God's anointed card. You know, yeah. <laughs> you got to like, dump it. Yeah, it's, you got to. It's done. Know, yeah. So it's like, listen, you do not have to be a cessationist to test somebody yeah. like Benny Hinn and find that he's a false prophet. You yes. can still believe in ongoing prophecy and say, whoa, Benny doesn't yep. actually fit. You know, because the test is given to us by God in Deuteronomy 18. And you're right, they, prophets have to bat a thousand. Now, I'm going to watch our time here. Uh, real quick, I, you know, I want to cover just another little bit of the topic that you discuss in chapter six, and that is the kingdom now theology. Uh, other people, you know, it's the, this is the seven mountains, dominionism, post millennial theology that is pervasive within the NAR. And when I was in the latter rain movement, I was explicitly taught this doctrine. Um, and I was taught it in this sense that the bride of Christ has to clean herself up and make herself clean and worthy before Jesus will return because the wedding feast of the Lamb. So it was always yeah. likened when I was in the latter rain to the bride has to take a shower and really be clean before the wedding day. And so, therefore, that's our mandate that we've got to take over the world and we've got to clean everything up and take dominion and and uh, and that and you know and take this to all the nations and stuff like that. That's how I was taught it when I was in the latter rain. And uh, there is uh, some eschewing of this concept or the poo-pooing uh, that Bethel teaches this, and yet you you put this d- kingdom now idea and this post-millennial dominionism squarely into uh, Redding's uh, Bethel Church. Explain why you do so, and uh, and you know, and can you can you verify and provide the documentation? I think you do, by the way, in your book to to say that they're into this. Yeah, and that's I won't. I'll let people kind of decide. This is one area that we spent a great deal of time digging into. Um, In the footnotes, you'll see it. We clarify, Mm -hmm. and we provide the documentation. And this goes back to what we talked about. I was going to kind of joke with you and say, when you were in the latter rain movement, why didn't you solve all our problems by now, Chris, if you were going to kind of bring the kingdom? Uh, You know, this would be the one that ties into their lack of change. They aren't. They're not bringing anything in. And the kingdom now idea is that we are kings and priests, and like many things, you're going to take. They're going to take biblical truths mm-hmm. 
and now apply it in a man-centered way. It's a man-centered theology. It's all about me. I'm going to usher into the king. I'm going to usher in the kingdom. We're going to hand it over to Christ. We are the kingdom. I probably the last five years before I was converted was brought up under this from one of my other uncles who is a kingdom now theologian. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what, they can sin like they want. They can live how they want. They are the elite. They're and one thing that will be done, and I'll tell you this, you know, to a fault or whatever, is our book will be used even by that side of the camp to say, you know, this is good. This is part of cleaning up the bride. This is all part of God's plan. And they'll actually affirm what we're saying to meet their eschatological framework, mm-hmm. only to more affirm that. And you know, Dr. Michael Brown's doing a great job. I think he's coming out with a book in April or something like that, playing with Holy Fire. Um, they're trying to clean the movement up. That's that's fine. I commend that. But uh, this all plays into this idea that they're going to clean up the church, clean up the world. And I got news for you. If you're pre-mill, on-mill, whatever, post-mill, the Bible provides a picture for things getting much worse yeah. before they're going to get much better. And I'll tell you who's going to make it all better. The King of Kings, not the NAR and not us. Right. You and I aren't going to solve it, Chris. Yeah, The King is going to solve it. And that's where, again, orthodox circles can come together and go, sure, let's argue when such and such is going to happen and how it'll all look and what's literal and what's not. That's totally fine. But you know what's out? This idea that we are going to do something that actually Christ is the one who's going to do. That's the elevation of man. Again, in the simplest terms, it's the NAR's main game to get people thinking that they are it. And we're not. And closely related to this kingdom now theology is the sonship doctrine, you know, where, you know, that basically this is a little bit of a crass way of depicting it. But since I'm a child of the king, that makes me a prince. And and as a prince, you know, I get to exert my royal authority and decree and declare and command and, and, and pull the kingdom down into the now. And I always find it fascinating that they manipulate, like classic post-millennialism, they manipulate the Lord's Prayer, uh, where the Lord will say, uh, you know, we, when you pray, say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And over and again, they'll argue, well, there's no poverty in heaven. There's no sickness in heaven. And so you've got to bring the kingdom to earth by exerting your royal authority as a as a son of the king and uh, as a prince or a princess. And that's a total uh, mishandling of the Lord's Prayer. It's just eisegesis. You're going to take a little bit of something and then unload your man-made doctrine on it. That That's what they do. I mean, I, it leaves me speechless. It makes me want to write more, preach more, help. It's why you do what you do. Um, and good news, just to kind of make you feel really good, this isn't going to stop. No. <laughs> I don't know. If that, it, it, that'll give you some really bad news to, to make you feel good. Um, it's only going to get worse. More and more delusion is going to happen. And But I'll tell you what else is going to happen. The true bride is going to keep getting saved. And the sheep are going to keep getting drawn in. And so we've got to be the watchmen on the wall. We've got to be the bad guys, and that's fine. Some people say it's hateful or yeah. uh, too polemic or polemic or whatever. I, you know what? We're just doing what Paul said to do. Preaching the word, refuting the air, loving the sheep, serving Christ, and yeah, we are, you'd call us Baptists, twiddling our thumbs, waiting for Christ to return or us to go home. 
proud to do that and honored to serve the Lord doing that. Twiddling our thumbs. I'm too busy doing good works. <laughs> it's like, and the, Jesus prepared them ahead of time anyway. It's like, come on. You know, it's, it's so um, – all right, Costi, we are going to have to have another conversation because uh, you know okay. I, I got to admit I am I am thoroughly impressed with the work. I love the tone of the book, by the way, as well, and I love how you in the book kind of anticipate that criticism that you, what you're doing is unloving. I love the illustration that you gave of the mother who whose child had been burned. And uh, and it was necessary for that child to be able to heal that uh, she had to do the painful thing with him. And uh, that that's a great way of describing the work that we are called to. I, I do not revel in any of the fights that I find myself getting embroiled in uh, in order to defend the truth. It's oftentimes it's it's kind of the drudgery of being a daily soldier. It's like, yeah, I got to put my uniform on again and uh, yep. and and get into the fight. But uh, in the here and the now, the church is is uh, the, uh, the, the church at war. Will be the church triumphant when Christ returns. Yeah. And so, you know, in the meantime, you know, you, you you suit up, you put your armor on, you put take your sword out and you get into the fight and you stand your ground. This is what we're called to do. And so I, I think the work that you and Anthony have done right. in putting this book forward is I, I really love that this is a good resource that will provide that wedge and say, these guys are saying this, the scriptures are saying this, and uh, and uh, let's have this conversation and actually address these abuses. So thank you uh, for the work that you've done. I, I get the feeling we're going to be talking and, and- again. Let's do it for sure. Yeah, we've got, um, there, I want to just mention kind of one other guy as well. Our editor on the project, his name is Joe Miller. Uh, he's a university graduate, and he, uh, it was, it was really neat to have him involved in the project, kind of combing through everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he's, he's been through that. You'll see him in the editor's, uh, preface, actually. And some of what he brought to the table, it, it was like sitting in a room with you, me, Pastor Anthony, uh, so all of us guys are just guys, and we're just sharing the gospel and doing what we can. So I'm thankful for the entire team that put it together. Excellent. Thank you for your time, Costi. Lord's blessings to you, and uh, we will pray that uh, this book gets a wide distribution and that the Lord will use the Word of God within it to open people's hearts and minds to the truth, to set them free from these wolves who have... Uh, who have captured them, and uh, for their own purposes rather than for the purposes of God. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. So there you have it. There's my interview recorded earlier today with Costi Hinn, and I'm going to tell you, I just I cannot say enough good about this book. It is well-written. It really puts its finger on the doctrinal issues and gives the biblical basis for refuting the errors of so much that we see here at uh, Fighting for the Faith and we review here at Fighting for the Faith in the New Apostolic Reformation, as well as the um, third and fourth wave so-called charismatic movement and the nonsense that goes on with a lot of the luminaries within the charismatic movement. Well worth the read, written by a fellow who is an, an insider uh, <laughs> in those in that movement and knows it very well from the inside out. Worth the read. You can get a copy. Go to fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see it as the recommended book. Click on the link there and you can purchase a copy for yourself. You can even get it in an ebook format and uh, download and start reading it immediately. It is really that good. You're going to want to have it. 
So, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.